Welcome everybody to the 11th Hour. My name is Adam, and if you're listening to this, you have definitely tuned into the 11th Hour podcast. This is the first ever podcast that we've done, and I've been back and forth on a couple different ideas that I should do a topic in sobriety, I should do a step in sobriety, I should definitely have a guest, I should do all these crazy and wonderful things. But ultimately, I've really decided is that, one, you don't know anything about me, and some of you might benefit from hearing my story. Uh, so really what this episode is, is how did I get here? Uh, so a little bit about myself. My name is Adam. Um, I am an alcoholic and a drug addict. My sobriety date is October 26th of 2019. You know, being an alcoholic, um, and a drug addict was definitely not, uh, a life aspiration for me. Going into multiple treatments was not on my to-do list. Going into AA wasn't on my to-do list, but I am here. And it was the greatest, most significant thing in my life. And today I live a life that is beyond my wildest dreams because of my recovery. And why I wanted to do this podcast, because I know that somewhere out there, someone is listening that needs to hear this. And in my humble opinion, everyone that is struggling with addiction deserves to feel and live a life that I live, they deserve to have that second chance. They deserve to feel loved. They deserve to have love in their heart. So that is why I go and do this. So if this touches one person, then this was worth it in my opinion. Um, So again, my name is Adam and I grew up in a really small town in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, a town that's called Escanaba, Michigan. Uh, Most of you probably don't know where the Upper Peninsula is unless you live there or you're listening, you know me, then yes, definitely shout out to those people. There's probably some people listening that have known me in the past uh, that are like, I had no idea I was in recovery. And there's probably those people that are like, yes, thank you. Finally, you found that path that led you in there. Um, And you know, I know a lot of my friends growing up are in recovery. So uh, congratulations on your journey. And I hope that it's treating you well. But nonetheless, I grew up in Escalade, Michigan, and I had no reason outside of, you know, exterior things uh, and internal things uh, looking in that that should have led me to be an alcoholic or a drug addict. Um, I went through private Catholic schooling. I had a great education. My parents loved each other and they loved me. My parents are still married to this day. They still love each other and they still very much love me. I was a very popular kid growing up. I was good at athletics. Um, I had a lot of friends. But the one thing that sticks out the most to me when I look back now being 37 37 years of age, looking back at my life is how my alcoholism really showed up at a really young age. And it showed up in the terms of me seeking that self-approval. I had to be the best at something. I had to try my hardest. I had to get that good grade so I could hear that, hey, great job. I lived my life on the approval of other people. This went on up until about my junior high years, so to say, when it really became easier to get attention being defiant. Um, And it became easier to make friends with people who were making choices like I was making. The first ever exposure I had into recovery was because I got caught doing methamphetamine at school. Why I was doing methamphetamine at school, I couldn't tell you. I'm assuming at this point, looking back on it now, I was trying to fit in, I was trying to look cool, um, 
or maybe I just wanted to feel something different because very much like everyone else that's listening to this, I'm sure you can identify with that I never fit in. I always felt like I was a square peg trying to be pushed through a circle hole. I had a lot of group, a lot of different groups of friends that I would bounce around in between and I never felt like I really belonged to any of them. So naturally, I sort of gravitated into punk rock. Punk rock was a way for me to feel accepted no matter what because I've always felt extremely different inside. And more importantly to me is that it justified the lifestyle that I was choosing to live. I could drink, I could do drugs, and the harder I did those things, the harder punk rock I was, or so I I thought, in my really early teen years. So all throughout high school, I really gravitated towards that like punk rock type scene. A lot of partying, a lot of drug use, a lot of drinking, and I'm not going to go too far into glamorizing those things because that was part of my problem, and I don't live in that problem anymore. Today, I live in the solution. Uh, All sorts of trouble followed me throughout high school, and very shortly after that incident where I had my first exposure to a you know recovery program I got arrested again for drugs and had to go through court ordered recovery treatment the correlating fact though is that uh, and that happened you know again and again and again more times than I can remember is that it was never my fault it was someone else's fault it was that person's fault this person's fault we should have gone somewhere else you should have had those drugs better it was always someone else's problem not mine of course I actually did fairly well in school. I did really well academically. Now, I never went to class because I had bigger things to do. I couldn't be bothered. I had better plans. And I really um, revolted against any sort of structure or any sort of form of discipline. And I just wanted nothing to do with it. So I skipped school a lot. Now, my senior year, Because I did really well academically, I was able to actually take AP college credit courses. And the courses I was taking were nursing because that was, at that point in time, and it still probably is, the career of the future. There was going to be a high demand for nursing, and it sounded like a really good uh, career path for me. I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I liked helping others. I liked the social interaction of it. But it was a lot of work. It was too much self-accountability for me. And all the meanwhile, through high school, I was working in restaurants to, you know, get money for other things like we all sort of do. And that's really where it clicked for me was that restaurants really did suit my lifestyle. I could sleep in all day, go to work at three o'clock. I could drink all night and party. I was surrounded by people who also liked to party. As anyone who works in the restaurant industry sort of knows um, that, you know, that lifestyle So it really sort of worked for me. So when it came time to pick a college, you know, actually go go to college and pick a major, I gravitated towards hospitality management and culinary arts. And I went to university, Northern Michigan University, where I decided that nursing wasn't really in my future and that I sort of wanted to break into more working in restaurants, become a famous chef. Um, go cook, you know, in New York or Chicago or something different. So I went to school and I really actually buckled down and did well for myself. Um, I was on the dean's list for the first couple semesters. 
but again, you know, my drinking sort of took over. My drug use took over. I didn't really want to go to school. I didn't really want to have an accountability. I just sort of wanted to have fun and whatnot. Uh, but nonetheless, I met a really wonderful person there um, who I ended up having a child with. And I actually somehow managed to take a job at a restaurant in downtown Chicago right on State Street. So in my mind, I had solidified myself. I had made it. I was now working for a restaurant downtown. I had a child. And this was the reason that everyone was looking for. This was the thing that was supposed to stop me from myself. I was supposed to live for something bigger than myself. And I did for a long time. It was a propelling force in my in my life that really kept me sort of tame and on the right path for a while, having children, trying to create a life for myself, trying to establish my career. It really did, but no matter how far I ran from myself, I always ended up catching up to myself. So needless to say, I moved down to Chicago. I ended up getting married. Um, shortly after the birth of my first daughter, I, it was the birth of my second daughter. And things were really going well in my life. I had gotten a house in uh, Elmhurst, Illinois, which is a really nice suburb um, of Western Chicago. And to look on the outside looking in, I had everything. I had a beautiful family. I had a great job. I had a very lucrative career. My wife's family at the time was very supportive of us. My family was very supportive of us. Tons of people loved me. If you were to look at my life, you would want it. But I wasn't happy with it. Somehow or another, I was never satisfied with what I had, and I just kept waiting for that next great thing in my life, whether it was a promotion, new car, bigger house, whatever it may be, it was going to bring me my happiness. It was always material possessions and more and more and more. So I continued to work in restaurants here and there. I ended up leaving you know, Chicago after a while, made it into the suburbs working for a restaurant and finally settled that one restaurant career. Uh, but somewhere between those points, at the age of 29, after a really long drinking binge and a really massive blow-up fight in my life, I ended up going into the rooms at AA for my first time. And the one thing that I was really great at during that time was cherry-picking lines out of the big book. Man, I would look at the big book, and when it said that maybe I wasn't an alcoholic, maybe I was a light drinker or a moderate drinker, and maybe I just needed something sufficient in my life to help me moderate or cut down, maybe that nothing really bad happened to me because nothing really bad had happened to me yet at that point. I went into AA and I was sober with the intent of recovery. I went into AA really with the notion that I was going to fix my marriage and that it was all just going to, you know, everyone's going to leave me alone, get off my back. I never really firmly grasped the concept that I was never going to be able to drink or do drugs like everyone else would. And I would just try to perpetuate and change things so that the next time would be different. Well, after about 90 days of sobriety, I finally cherry-picked that line out of the big book that if you don't think you're an alcoholic, maybe you should try some controlled drinking. It might be worth uh, a bad case of the jitters. When I saw that, I was like, this is the answer. Because I don't really know if I'm an alcoholic. Because I sat in those rooms and failed to see the similarities between me and the other people. I failed to see that 
the guys that were sitting in there talking to me were heeding me warning signs saying, hey, it doesn't need to be this way because it didn't need to be this way, but it was. And it, and it ended up being this way. And, uh, but they would sit there and I would look at them and being like, man, what a loser. Someone like me was sitting there telling, uh, you know, they were saying this hasn't happened yet. Don't you just have a bad case of the yets? It's not that bad yet. And I kept saying in my mind, we're not the same. I'm not like you. I don't have legal problems. I haven't lost my family. I haven't lost a house. I haven't done this yet. I can never make the similarities. I always saw the differences. Well, on that one day where I decided to cherry pick that line, I walked out of the rooms you know, that night and tried that controlled drinking, and I didn't go back for a long time. But what happened was I went through a revolving door of recovery for the next 12 or so years of my life. And the only thing that reigned true in those 12 years was that the arms of AA would be there for me if and when I chose recovery. With each relapse, it got harder and harder to stop or to go back in, and it just perpetually got worse and worse. And I tried to control every exterior force to make myself happy. If only I could control what was going on outside of my life, I could feel better inside. So what I tried to do was excel at work. That was my plan. And at the height of my addiction, I ended up getting the best promotion of my life. I completely indulged myself into this promotion. I worked round the clock. I did everything in my power to get this promotion because I thought that was going to be the key to my happiness. But what it also was, was a major driving force into one of the you know worst relapses I've ever had in my life. And at the end of that relapse, despite that promotion, I was presented with an option from an intervention from my family to go to treatment. So I did, I ended up going to treatment in March of 2018. Now when I checked into treatment, in my mind, I was just going there for detox. I was gonna detox, make sure I was still alive, get out of that place and go back to my life because I had things to do. I had this job I needed to get back to. I had all of these grandiose plans in my life. For whatever reason, I made it through detox and I did make the decision to go into residential treatment where I stayed for 26 days or so. And again, it was, even though they were recommending treatment beyond that, it was, I've got these things to do. I've got these people to see. I've got this job to go back to. My life outside of here is far too important to invest any sort of time into my recovery. But realistically, investing any sort of time in my recovery also meant that I needed to take accountability for my life, accountability for my actions, and control my own recovery, not to mention accountability for my own recovery. And I wasn't ready to take that step. Looking back on it, I got exactly what I deserved out of that rehab center, which I got a very expensive big book. And that was all I was really going to get out of it because I wasn't about to do any sort of work. I wasn't going to go through the step work. I didn't want to go to meetings. I was going to go through the motions. Now, the most crushing defeat at that point in time when I was getting ready to discharge was my wife at the time didn't want me to come home. She wanted me to go into sober living. And I was having none of that. 
So after talking with my therapist and going back and forth between my wife at the time and this, going into sober living really was the only option. It was the only way that I was going to be discharged at that point in time. Now, if I was going to be discharged at a later date, then I had to get something else and, you know, show them that it was a validated choice to go there and that they would approve of it. But I wasn't about to stay in this rehab for another week or so to show them that. So I fought the sober living thing uh, tooth and nail. I ended up getting into a sober living uh, close to the city and never really looked into it. Went online, we found this place. There was like one picture of the house. It wasn't even the right house. Um, well, it wasn't the house that I went to anyways. And there was really no information about it whatsoever. But nonetheless, that's where I went to. And if for anyone that is out there trying to get into sober living right now, let this heed a warning that there are sober livings out there that aren't quite what they seem. And if you've been in sober living before, I know you know what I'm talking about. There are some sober livings out there that are just there to take your money, that don't have your recovery in their interests. Um, but looking back on it, you know, number one, your own recovery has to be your best interest. And at that point in time, it wasn't in mine. So I went into the sober living um, environment. And right off the bat, they told me is this is a three-quarter house and... We will check in with you. You can pay your rent in cash. You pay this person. Uh, this is your curfew. That is pretty much it. Um, and I really don't want to go too much into this place because ultimately I am the cause of all my problems and I am accountable for all my actions regardless of scenarios. Me personally though, what I'm trying to get across is that I did not put myself in the right position um, there was a lot of drug use in the house. There's a lot of drinking in this house. And I did try to stay sober for a period of time. But the reason why I wanted to stay sober wasn't because I wanted sobriety. It wasn't because I wanted a life in sobriety. It was because I wanted my marriage to get back together. And after several months of doing this, and after several months of relapsing over and over again, relapse, get back into sobriety, relapse, get back into sobriety, my wife at the time finally said, like, I'm not doing this with you anymore. And that was the exact reason that I needed to hear at that point in time to go on a, to go on another run. It was the reason that I was going to hold on to and not let go. So there I was deep in another relapse and... This time, the worst that I've ever experienced. Um, I was doing all sorts of crazy things. And again, I'm not going to go too much into that pain because we all know that pain. We're all here for that reason. Uh, but I would go into motel rooms for weeks at a time, not answer my phone, not answer the door. I was missing shifts at work. My life became completely unmanageable. And towards the end of this all, not only was my life completely unmanageable, but I also became suicidal because... I knew the only two options for me was I was either going to have to get sober or I was going to have to die. It was no longer a choice of, well, I could have a life in sobriety. It was I was going to either get sober or I was going to die. And I couldn't imagine what a life of sobriety looked like. I just couldn't picture it. So one day I'm out there and I'm driving around and my 
plan was that I was going to crash my car on 88 going west. And that plan was so that my kids could collect the life insurance. That that way I wouldn't die in an overdose. I wouldn't die in, a, in an alcohol-related death. And in my mind, it was justifiable because they were better off without me. One day after I initiated a leave of absence at work with some kind pushing uh, from my employer at the time to go and get some help, I wasn't quite ready to get that help though, so I was on a really long bender. Uh, one day I just decided like this is going to be it. This is going to be the day that I'm, I'm gonna end my life because all I am is an anchor. I'm not doing anything for anyone and I'm going to die in an overdose or in an alcoholic tragic death anyways. So what am I really perpetuating this on for? So I'm driving around and I'm driving around and not to mention about a week before this, um, I actually walked out of a detox center from a different intervention that I'd gotten from some people who really cared about me. But I just, at that point in time, recovery wasn't in my cards. I had better things to do. I went there to sort of just get everybody off my back. And maybe, I, I mean, I guess I kind of went there because I did really deep down inside. knew I, I couldn't never do this on my own. And I really was getting tired of living this way. But anyhow, uh, I'm driving around in my car and I'm, and I'm going to end my life. But some a thought came into my mind of why don't I give recovery a chance? Why don't I give rehab a chance? What do I have to lose? So I picked up the phone and I called um, my best friend to this day who happens to be my ex-wife who's been throughout this time probably the biggest supporter of my sobriety. Well, hands down, has always been the biggest supporter of my sobriety. And I just said, hey... I really need some help and I can't do this anymore and I'm in a really bad spot. And she's like, I know. Why don't you come over to my house? So that's what I did. I showed up completely intoxicated with the notion of, I don't really know what I had the notion of. All I knew is that I wanted to die but I was too scared to do it. And I thought that rehab was probably the best choice for me. Well, I got there and I was greeted with a get in the car. And I'm like, what do you mean get in the car? She's like, you wanted help, get in the car. I'm like, no, I need to go do laundry. I gotta pack a bag. Like, I gotta, she's like, nope. We'll figure that out when you get there. So I got in a car and I drove to Gilman, Illinois, um, which is in the Southern Illinois, which is basically a farm town. Most intense, intimidating, scary ride as anyone who's been to treatment before knows the feelings you're having going into that. It's every emotion you can imagine going 100 miles per hour all at once. And I got to Gilman, Illinois, and you're driving through all these cornfields. And I honestly thought like maybe this was a, maybe I was the place where I was going to go and just get killed for my life insurance. I really wasn't exactly sure. But when we pulled up there and I got out of the car, immediately I went and turned back to the car and the car was locked. And my immediate reaction was, and my, my exact words were, I swear I will run away. Let me in this car. This was a giant mistake. And it was, no, you asked for this help. Do you want it or not? And that was a tough thing to hear. Um, that tough love is a very hard thing to hear. And I had heard that a week before, you know, from my own mother saying, 
don't call me anymore. I don't want to talk to you until you get some help. You are going to die and it's not going to be my fault. I love you and I'm always going to love you, but I cannot sit back and be a part of your death. That tough love is, is a very hard thing to hear in early recovery, but it's also sometimes the things that honestly that we need to hear. It was the thing that I needed to hear. I needed to be completely alone. I needed it to go that far. I needed to be in that treatment center without a bag packed, without anybody wanting to talk to me and just going, fix your life. We don't want to be a part of this anymore. Figure your shit out. And that's exactly what I checked in to do. So I checked in miserable, bawling my eyes out, and I met someone uh, incredibly kind who I'm still in contact with this day who greeted me at the door and said, honey, it's okay. I'm in recovery too. You're in the right spot and we're going to get you some help. And I believed her because I knew she knew what I was feeling. She knew exactly what I was going through at that point in time. And I honestly believed that it was going to be okay. So I checked in to, um, I checked into treatment on October 25th. Now, my sobriety date, as I said, is October 26th. When I checked in there, that's kind of a likely story with all of us, you know, that one last run. Now, when I had gotten there, again, I didn't have a bag packed. So uh, my ex-wife who went and dropped me off there, went over to like the local Walmart and got me a pair of jeans, a pair of sweatpants, um, a pack of socks, pack of underwear and three t-shirts and a pair of slippers. So I made it through, uh, I went, I was in treatment for 90, close to 90 days, 89 days. So I made it through treatment, the the bulk of it with three t-shirts, four underwear, four pairs of socks, two pairs of pants and some slips. Now rehab is exactly, if you've never been there, it's not exactly what it sounds like. Um, but I had been through residential treatment before. I knew the answers to those worksheets they give you. I knew the answers to DBT and CBT, and I was comfortable with that. And what I wasn't about to lead on to them was the fact that I was thinking of killing myself. Because I knew the medical actions that they would probably take. I knew in my mind, well, I didn't know. In my mind, I thought that I would be going to a very different type of treatment facility, one where, you know, you're sort of locked up for being a crazy person. I did not want to share that about my life. So I was in residential treatment and I did not share that with anyone uh, for that fear. I didn't want to admit that my life was completely unmanageable. I didn't want to admit that I was, you know, in my mind having suicidal thoughts because, you know, that toxic masculinity that I had grown up with was don't ever admit that you need help. Don't ever show that sign of weakness. Don't do that. It's going to look on manly. And I held on to that. And I didn't want to share that with anyone. So I simply just kept it to myself. And I just kept kind of going on. Um, a couple weeks into treatment. It is like a day before Halloween. And it had freshly snowed outside. And I remember this was a cup. Maybe like I was just getting out of detox. And I went outside to smoke a cigarette. And there's all this snow and it's freezing cold outside. And I thought to myself, I don't want to do this. This isn't worth it. I 
I don't, I just can't do this. So I had made the decision in my mind that I was going to leave that rehab center. I was going to go, you know, I was going to go AMA and I'd be off and I gave it a shot. It didn't work out. It wasn't for me, whatever. I just needed that time, that detox period to sober up again. I was going to go out there and sort of make it on my own. And again, it had freshly snowed outside. I didn't even have a winter coat. Uh, I didn't really even have any warm shirts, but nonetheless, in my mind, I was going to make it. So I went over to one of the techs and I was like, all right, I need you to get me my things. And they sort of looked at me and they're like, all right, well, you didn't come with much. So that's not going to take us very long, but you are aware that when you checked in with us, that we cannot give you your wallet or your cell phone for 24 hours after you decide to leave. I was like, and you know, of course the swear words went flying. How dare you? Do you know who I am? You know, all this sort of banter back and forth between us. Uh, that is against my rights. Like, you signed that. I was like, well, I'm, I signed a lot of things when I checked in, and I'm certain that all of this seemed like a great idea when I checked in. But nonetheless, this is just a big misunderstanding. So I went inside into, you know, after this altercation, and went inside and sat down, and I still decided that with without a phone or any money or anything else, that I could still do this. I could simply walk to the next town, which was probably 20 to 25 minutes away, which was my guess, and that was a driving time of from when I checked in there. Now, I'm not a super smart guy, but I knew enough when I was driving in there to note where the closest town was in case I needed to take a fast getaway. I knew that walking would take me probably roughly about an hour and a half, but in my mind, I thought I could do that. I was just going to have to panhandle for some money. And deep down inside, I was okay with this choice because, you know, my body had taken me places that I didn't necessarily want to go before. But then it hit me. It's like, I have this chance. I have this chance where I can stay here, eat, sleep. It's warm. I have clothes, uh, I have cigarettes, but I'm going to, you know, go and panhandle for the temporary relief of the discomfort that I'm feeling. And that was the first time in my life that I ever really understood the unmanageability of this disease. Because I knew what was on the other end of that decision. I knew right then and there that when I decided that if I was going to go panhandle and get a bottle or go and score something that that choice was gone. You know, I didn't know when I was coming back. I lost that power of choice when I put drugs and alcohol in my body that it was going to stop when it says stop. It was going to stop when I ran out of money or couldn't steal any money anymore or manipulate someone the other more. I didn't control that choice. The drugs and alcohol did. So I really, in that moment, really understood the unmanageability and loss of choice for the first time in my life. And needless to say, um, I am where I am today because I made the choice to stay in that rehab center. So I continued on going through this rehab uh, center and I was in residential treatment for uh, about four weeks, three, three to four weeks. I don't know. It was a while ago. Uh, but nonetheless, I was really comfortable doing the CBT worksheets, doing the DBT worksheets. And what I wasn't going to admit, like I said, was that I was having these suicidal thoughts. I wasn't going to admit that I didn't know uh, that, that I, I wasn't going to admit that I wasn't the smartest person in the room, that my life was completely unmanageable. 
I needed to put on this fake facade because what if I didn't end up going through this long range of treatment? What if I needed an easy out? What if I decided that I was going to discharge? I wanted to make it as easy as possible for myself. Um, you know, that's how my mind works. Always working for that one more step of, of you know, that f- of what I thought was freedom in my mind. Um, so I left their residential program and I went to a partial hospitalization program called PHP. Now, this PHP center happened to be in Naperville where I worked. So I was really familiar with the area. I knew there really well. Excuse me, and I drove in that portal van to get dropped off there. And as we drove in, I immediately my mind started to go again. This would be really, really, you know, I could walk and go somewhere. I could have a friend pick me up. I know this area. I am one step closer to just, you know, going to that freedom. Um, not to mention that at this point, I had most everything in my possession. Um, and those possessions included a garbage bag, which I had to borrow to put all my clothes in, my wallet, uh, you know, my phone and all that with me. And they did allow me to turn my phone on and make a couple quick phone calls. Uh, the dude that drove me was super cool and really nice. But I recognized that on a manageability, I, I knew that thought from what that thought I had before. I knew that that was me looking back and glamorizing my life. Because I, to this day, can look back and tell you the four or five times that I drank and did drugs and it worked out really well. Why? Because my brain can hold on to those things. I can look back and, and romanticize on those things because they worked out perfectly. I didn't get in any trouble. I had a great time. I went to bed. I still remember it. I didn't have an altercation with the police. They were great. Or I can look back on this thing with absolute defeat and I can realize what it was that ultimately I had to get scooped out of a crack shack where I was sleeping in a mattress that was soaked in my own piss. That there was no disco ball in the dope house. That my life had become completely unmanageable. That I was suicidal. And then I was at the lowest low point of my entire life. So that's actually what I choose to look back on. I don't romanticize those things, although my brain does have the ability to go back there to this day. I just change its course, you know, for its for my best interest, of course. So nonetheless, I went to this PHP course in Naperville where treatment shifted. It shifted from doing these worksheets to group therapy, to talking about your feelings, to talking about how you're doing, to talking about things that are bothering you in your life and in your sobriety. And that was by far the hardest thing that I had to do was to sit there and talk about what I was going through, to talk about how I was feeling, to talk about the thoughts I was having, the feelings I was having. And one day I just decided that, you know what, if I'm going to be here, I might as well be honest about it. And sitting next to me was a friend of mine who's a friend of mine to this day who's still uh, in recovery. And he had the courage to say, you know what, I hate myself. I don't love myself. I don't even think I'm worthy of sobriety for some of the things that I've done. And all I could say was, yeah, me too. And that one thing opened up this this flow of emotions for me and this uh, I started to get honest with not only with myself but the people around me to some of the things that I was going through too because I didn't like myself I hated myself I loathed myself I didn't feel worthy of recovery I felt hopeless I felt lost I was afraid so eventually down the road these the suicidal thoughts I was having started to come back 
And this time I made the choice that I was gonna actually talk to someone about it because it was clear that this wasn't just a byproduct of drinking and doing drugs, that I was having some serious mental health issues that needed to be addressed. So I actually went and got open with my therapist about it, who, which was the best choice of my, of, of that I could have ever made in my lifetime. Probably the choice that saved my, that one of the choices that saved my life to this day was saying, Hey, I'm not okay. I'm having these horrible thoughts of harming myself and I don't know what to do about it. And what it did, it allowed my therapist to actually work with me by me being honest with her. Imagine that, you know, all it took was me being honest for her to say, okay, let's work through these issues. Let's get you on a safety plan because number one, you know, my safety was important, not only to that rehab center, to her, uh, but also, you know, to me, but to start taking some of the steps that were necessary to move past these things in a healthy, constructive, and loving way. We started dealing with the anxiety that I was having. We started dealing with the depression I was having. We started dealing with the suicidal thoughts I was having. And they were all centered around what I was going through in my recovery and things that I was going and facing in my life that, you know, I didn't feel where the recovery, that I hated myself, that I had all this anxiety, that I had all these control issues. And one of the things she had me start doing was actually keeping a mood journal. And every time of the day that my mood would change, she would have me write down where I was, what I was doing, and who was around me. And lo and behold, any time that I had anxiety was when I felt that I wasn't in control of the situation. I started writing these daily affirmations about myself, um, things that I didn't believe in at the time, and they, they sound really cheesy and corny, but I, I needed to do it. I needed to get past that point of, of, of hating myself. I needed to get on a, a plane of actually, you know, not only taking care of my body, but taking care of myself in a nurturing and loving way. So I just write out every single day while I journaled, you know, five things, uh, you know, I'm worthy of recovery, that I love myself, that I'm worthy of being loved, that I'm, you know, all these really, uh, they, I don't want to call them cheesy, but they sound cheesy. And I would write these, these things out every day and I would read them back and forth to myself every day. And I decided that at a certain point that, that I really you know, I, I would say them enough where I actually started to sort of believe them. Things were getting better, but they weren't great. I was still kind of miserable. And one night when I'm sitting there alone and it's really late at night and I couldn't sleep, which happened a lot when I was there, um, I started reading a chapter in the big book called We Agnostics. And I was really faced with some really hard questions. You know, either God is or he isn't. Um, you know, reading about electricity, just these questions that I had to really force myself. And I, and I finally had to come to this conclusion in my mind of that God had directed me to this point for a reason. That perhaps there's a God out there who gave a shit about my sobriety. And... I'm just going to clarify this right now that when I'm talking about my higher power, I'm referring to, to my higher power as God. I refer to my higher power as God. My higher power refers to me as Adam. It's how we identify each other. It works for me. So when I'm saying God, all I'm really referring to is your higher power and my higher power. But I really had to get in this notion that there was a God out there who gave a shit about my sobriety. That for some reason, 
beyond myself that I decided not to crash my car, that I ended up in this treatment center, which was now, you know, 30-something days later. And for the first time in my life, I said a prayer in my own words, and it wasn't pretty, and it was full of tears, and it was just something like, God, I don't know who you are or what's going on, but I need help because I can't do this alone. I am having horrible thoughts. I want to kill myself. I don't feel loved. I don't feel like I'm worthy of sobriety, and I just need the strength to keep going, please. Just give me the strength to keep going. And that was it. That was my prayer, and that was really my coming to step two. And that decision, that willingness to believe in something bigger than myself, to believe that there was something bigger than myself that could restore me to sanity. Now, I'd already admitted that I was you know, powerless over drugs and alcohol, and my life was unmanageable. That had become apparent. But now I came to believe that there was a power that was going to restore my sanity. It was a very pivotal point in my recovery, that one moment where I decided that, you know what, either God is or he isn't. And that's really where my recovery started rolling for me. And I started noticing these really spiritual things around me. And I went to this NA meeting because uh, while you're in PHP, they allow you to go to some outside meetings. I went to this NA meeting on a Friday night that's in Elmhurst and it's still out there today. It's called Bagpipers. And if you've never had the chance to go, I highly recommend you go uh, to that meeting. But I went there and we were reading a story called When God Walks In. And at the end of this story, the character says, you know, because of the rooms at NA, I now feel loved. I know that I'm worthy of recovery and I can pass this on to the newcomer. And when it came time for everyone to talk, I just raised my hand. I was like, you know, I'm having a really hard time with this story because I don't feel loved and I don't feel worthy of recovery. And I'm not even sure if, if I really want this. And a gentleman who was there, who had been going there for years, started talking to me. He's like, you know, Adam, I do love you because God loves you and you are worthy of recovery. Every single person is worthy of recovery. And that's why we love you. And that's why we want to keep you coming back. And he's like, tomorrow's going to be better. And it's going to get better after that. And for the first time in my life, I felt the overwhelming presence of God in my life. That I was the only person in that room. And that message was for me. It was exactly what I needed to hear at that point in time. It was what I needed to hear from God. It was that I'm not mad at you. I am madly in love with you. And if you just take my hand, I am going to give you a life beyond your wildest dreams because I love you that much. It was also the first time in my life that I really started to understand that slogan or slang we hear going in and out of the room so many times of, don't worry, we're going to love you till you love yourself. And that experience wasn't this, uh, you know, magical, bright white light. I'm going to go throughout the streets like it's a wonderful life and, and everything's going to be great. No, I still needed to do lots of work in my own recovery. What it was, though, it was a very spiritual experience for me. I felt the overwhelming presence of God, but it was what I needed at the moment to keep going. And that's exactly what I did with it. I kept going and I started to develop a relationship with my higher power. I started developing a per personal relationship with God and it led me on to my, you know, step three. And I was completely ready to give my life over to the care of God because I didn't want my life. I couldn't manage my life. That step was not a hard one for me.
And I know a lot of people struggle with that. Like, oh, I was ready to have spiritual help um, because I couldn't run and manage my own life. I just couldn't do it. So that's exactly what I did. I, I gave my life over to a higher power. I started reading the big book. I started, you know, getting into spiritual things. I started prayer and I took the best advice uh, that I could have ever gotten from one of my uh, friends in the program when we were outside having a smoke break one day. And he's like, how you doing, man? I was like, man, I am miserable. He's like, yeah, I can tell. He said, you want my advice? And I said, yeah, I'd love your advice. And I thought he was going to give me this magical secret and key. He looked at me and he's, he towers over me. He's like 6'3". Um, for the visual, I'm like 5'10". And he looked at me, he goes, meditate twice a day, 10 minutes minimum. It's going to change your life. And I looked at him and I was like, are you nuts? He goes, no, that's it, man. Meditate. He goes, that's what I did. That's what was suggested to me. Pray and then meditate twice a day, minimum 10 minutes. It's going to change your life. And that's what I started doing. I started getting really big into meditation. Uh, I started mixing my meditation with prayer. I started dealing with the things that were going on subconsciously with me. So they were no longer coming out consciously. Uh, I was dealing with my innermost emotions. I was accepting spiritual help. And I kept going on through this treatment program. Um, you know, I, I went on through their PHP and I went into their IOP program where I was allowed, uh, you know, some more freedoms. At PHP, they were taking me to the grocery store. We could go to the gym. I was going to get haircuts and whatever. All under the supervision and everything that I needed. I needed someone to go to the grocery store with me because I, I needed to get re-familiar back with life, living in a sober and healthy way. Well, with IOP, I got, you know, to go and do those things on my own, but with all the credibility and check-in, um, I was able to go to work. I was able to go to more outside meetings. I got myself a sponsor. And with this sponsor, we started reviewing the steps, steps one, two, and three, but then continued working on some of these other steps while I was still in that treatment program. We started working on my step four. And like everyone else, I was not really looking forward to that step. We all want to do those amends right off the bat. We're like, yes, I want to make that amends because I feel like shit because I'm so guilty and guilt-ridden and shameful and I want something to relieve this. Uh, but then when it actually comes time to do the work to get in preparation for that, we all get very fearful. And my case was very similar to that. So after going through his guidance and trial and error and trial and error and having him explain this to me for, you know, so many times. And at one point I remember looking at him and be like, you know, I need you to explain this to me like I'm five. And then he explained it and I was like, man, all right, how about you explain it to me like I'm four? Because I just couldn't grasp this concept. But he gave me this wonderful worksheet and I started actually writing my stuff for well in this treatment program. Uh, during that time while I'm writing this stuff for, it came, actually came time for me to start leaving treatment. Well, I had no idea where I was going to go because at this point in time, I was homeless. You know, something that I don't know if you caught up on the drift of it, but you know, well, well before I actually went into this treatment, you know, my wife and I did separate, but while I was in treatment, she came to me and she was very concerned. And the concern was, is that, you know, her exact words were, you've been through recovery before and there isn't any promise. And our concern is that you're going to kill someone in a drunk driving accident or something worse. And they're gonna come after the house. I want you to sign this over. And that's what I did. They also went at me, or not they, 
I also had the chance to sign over my life insurance policy so I can no longer take any changes to it. And that included borrowing money against it. So I did that as well. And that really started to sink in that I was no longer an asset to anyone in my life, that I was a liability at this point. And in order to become an asset to anyone in my life, that I needed to do the work of these steps and I needed to go through recovery. And that although it seemed a really far ways away, things were getting better. Each day was getting better. And I was starting to feel better. And I knew, I didn't focus on that, um, you know, because it was too out of reach. I couldn't focus on that good. But I knew if I held on, and I heard those promises every day, I knew if I held on that those promises could come true for me. Because I used to sit there and be like, why me? Why me? Why, why would I deserve recovery? And then I started thinking, well, why not me? Why the fuck not me? Why can't I do this? What's stopping me other than doing the work, other than taking accountability and action in my life, taking responsibility for the things that I've done? So my, 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 my thinking really did start to shift. Well, fast forward again. Sorry about that. Um, you know, it's coming down for me to time to leave. And I, it's right about the holiday time. You know, I spent a lot of holidays in rehab, Halloween and Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve, Christmas, New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. The grandiose, you know, of all holidays, I, I spent them all in there and it was the best possible place for me. But nonetheless, I needed to figure out where I was going to go. And if I was certain about anything, it was that I needed to go to a reputable sober living. And if you've ever tried to find a sober living in the winter times or around the holidays, you know how hard that can be. Um, so I, I had one place that I was going to go and that was after, you know, calling place after place after place after place and here and they're full, here and they're full. One place was like, yeah, we, we have you on your list. You're, you're good to go. Um, just contact us after the new year, which I did. And once I contacted him, it was like, hey, you know, things didn't really work out like we thought we were going to. We don't actually have anything available for you. And I was crushed because I'm getting discharged now in a couple of weeks and I have no place to go because I'm homeless. So I decided the best thing that I could possibly do at that point in time was to pray about it and, and leave the outcome up to God. Um, and I was really scared because I thought that I had this place all lined up and ready to go. I thought that I was moving into a safe direction. And now I'm back out on the streets again. That's the alternative. Um, so I started going down the list again and I start calling places and calling places with nothing, with nothing, with nothing. And in about a week is going by. And finally I see a number, uh, which is like 847 area code. I'm like, that seems really far away. I'm going to give it a shot. So I called the number for the Normandy house, um, which they have a couple different locations. And that was it. That was the place that I was destined to go to. So I ended up actually getting a place uh, in Des Plaines uh, at the Normandy House, which was the best possible thing I could have ever done for my recovery. And I completed that 90 days of rehab and I'm leaving with a sponsor. I'm going to a very reputable sober living house and off to Des Plaines I went. But the lesson that I learned from that was to put my faith in God 
that when a door closes to accept the reason why and to be thankful that I don't need to know the reason why it was closed in the first place but to know that another one is going to open and that I have to trust his outcome and not my own because moving into the Normandy house in the Plains was the an amazing part of my recovery uh, there's so much community there there's so much fellowship there there's so much brotherhood there and I've loved every moment of living there um, it's extremely clean it's well kept it's you're accountable there's just so many great things about the Normandy house that I could have an entire podcast just dedicated to promote them uh, and their recovery homes and they are a key factor to this day of why I am still sober. But that is a different story for a different time. So um, for a large part of my recovery, I went in, you know, into the Normandy house. And I'm working with a sponsor. We're working through my step four. And we're really, uh, you know, working hard on my step four. And we get to my step five. And... My sponsor, who's you know, luckily is is very grounded in this program and knows a lot more than I do sometimes, goes to me. He's like, "All right, let's dedicate a few hours to doing your step five. And I'm like, "A few hours, man! Like thirty minutes? I'm thinking maybe forty five. After doing my step five, you know, uh, three and a half hours later, two bathroom breaks. Um, what we were able to do is really identify the patterns of how I was using people in my life, the patterns of how I was selfish, the patterns of how I was self-centered, self-seeking, how I was manipulative, my part in it. It was tough to go through, um, but I firmly believe that I had to go through that to be delivered to that next part that God had to bring me through it. So when I got to my six and seven, my sponsor said to me, he's like, all right, well, you know what it says in the big book? I'm like, yeah, and he's like, you can take an hour of quiet time to yourself, reflect, and you can move on to your step six, or you can sit in your step five for a little bit. And I'm like, okay. And he goes, I'm going to suggest you sit in your step five. And, you know, there's a great piece of literature out there called Drop the Rock. I would recommend reading that as well, but I'm going to give you the choice. And I chose to, to sit in my step five for a little while and to review those patterns of behavior, that selfishness, that self-seeking, that self-centeredness, um, what my partner was, how my my fear list, you know, all of those things so I could really identify what my character defects were before I asked for them to be removed. And that's exactly what I did. I, I sat in my step five. I read that book. Um, a lot of prayer and a lot of meditation, a lot of really recognizing what it was that my, what it was that I needed to have removed. And that's how I got to my step six and seven, um, was really, you know, working with the sponsor, doing a really solid four step. That was the fundamental basis of this was for the first time in my life, not only did I do a great four step, um, but I understood it. I understood what my part was. It I understood those correlating factors of what my part was, that a lot of the resentments that I had were just in my mind. Um, and, and I'm in the splains, I'm working with a sponsor and I'm working through the steps and we get up to my step eight and that making amends list. And I made my amends list and everyone I thought, you know, from using my inventory of who I had to make an amends to. And I made that amends list and went through with my sponsor and we solidified 
um, exactly whom I should make that amends to, what um, where it wouldn't injure them, uh, it wouldn't injure myself, and exactly how to go about it and the timing of it. Now, the twist of fate happened also at this sort of time, and you know if you haven't realized, we are living in a global pandemic right now due to COVID nineteen. And right at the time where I'm ready to go make my amends, COVID-19 happened. So immediately I was like, oh my goodness, you know, I had all the fears of the pandemic and everything that we're all going through. The world is collapsing. We're all going to perish. The world has ceased as we know it. It stopped to maybe this isn't as big a deal as we thought it was. You know, all those mixed emotions, that mixed bag of what comes with, um, you know, how we all dealt with that pandemic. Um... But really going through and, and, and that amends list was sort of put on hold for a little bit, um, you know, obviously for social distancing factors and even a little bit longer as things were opening, you know, back up and you are, you know, and we all started to go out a little bit more. I had to be very careful with some of these amends because I didn't know um, exactly what was going on in their life anymore. I, you know, a lot of these people I hadn't seen in a very long time. Lives were definitely affected with the coronavirus. Um, you know, I didn't know where other people's mental states were. Were they working? Were they not working? Were they employed anymore? Were they not employed? How they're handling, um, you know, the stay-at-home order. I'd really be cautious and careful of where to go from. Where to go from there? Uh, keeping in mind that not only am I not trying to inflict harm on anyone else, that the amends need to be my own, but also where they're at with everything going on with coronavirus. Now, needless to say, the stay-at-home order, the pandemic, um, this pandemic, everything still this has been extremely hard for everyone in the recovery community. And, um, you know, I'm not going to lie and say that it wasn't hard on me. Meetings were taken away. Um, we all met via Zoom, that that human interaction that we were all needed and, and, and yearned for was sort of stripped. And it was tough. It was really tough, you know, to go into this technology-based version of recovery that we've all adapted and grown to today. And this is really actually kind of the point where I started formulating the idea for doing this podcast, to be honest, as, you know, how do we get recovery out there in the world well, in this pandemic, but also make it real, um, obtainable, run by, you know, not, I don't want to say run by because that's not the proper term because I don't feel like I run anything, you know, I'm just sharing my experience, strength, and hope. But how to get the message out there without being face-to-face? So we're all left to these, you know, the things, whether it's telecom or Zoom or, you know, all these these different things that we've all come to know about YouTube stories, you know, the list can go on ad infinitum, um, but that's really where this idea of my podcast formed. And during this pandemic, you know, I was very fortunate at, uh, you know, to be in Normandy House where we did still have some face-to-face meetings, socially distanced with a mask and um, a little bit prema- not prematurely isn't the right word, but before everyone else did, because we were all quarantined there together, um, you were able to have meetings with your housemates, which you were kind of living with anyways. So it really did work out for me being in sober living at the time. I felt like I had a different advantage point versus the rest of the world that was doing these things via Zoom. 
yes, indeed, uh, meetings got trickier. Recovery got a little bit different. Um, the world got a little bit different. It wasn't just the recovery community. Let's not be selfish in that one, guys. Everything became completely different. And I was very fortunate at that point in time that I was still considered an essential employee for my job. I was still able to go to work. Um, I was still out and about and, you know, going through detox and treatment, all those things as you, anyone else that's gone through, uh, treatment and being in a 12 step program is we were actually better equipped to handle a pandemic. And I will stand behind that statement. Although a pandemic is hard for anyone. I'm not saying that it was easy for anyone, um, especially any for, for you, you know, you guys, the listeners, but one, most of us have been through detox. Uh, so basically grab a coloring book and hold on for the ride. We know how to kill time when you need to. We know how to sit in one spot and we know what to do. Um, you know, we took it one day at a time. We were able to handle this in a very different manner than our other non 12 step, you know, friends did. But without getting too far sidetracked on that, and you know, as this pandemic shows that it's not going anywhere anytime soon, we can talk about that at a different time. You know, going through my amends list and, and making those amends um, was, you know, it, it's everyone has their own experience with it, and my experience was unique in itself. I got everything from that's awesome, Adam. Congratulations. We're glad you're doing well. We could have used this five years ago. Um, to radio silent, meaning I got no reply back from, to, you know, I want to hear this, but not right now. I need more time, um, which is absolutely fine. I accepted that for what it is. Because my goal in this, you know, the amends was mine. It wasn't theirs. I didn't need anything from them. I went about my amends in a way that I was commencing to live a different way of life. I was commencing to live a, a spiritual way of life. I was cleaning up the records of my past. I was acknowledging the harm that I did. I was taking responsibility and accountability for it. And I was moving forward because I don't live in that problem anymore. I live in the solution. Now, some of the amends, you know, did take longer than others. There was a lot of financial amends that I had to go and make, um, which, you know, those definitely take time and in no way, uh, under the advice of my sponsor, in no way, you know, was I really rushing and hurrying to try to make these amends. The important ones that I started out with were my living amends. And my living amends were really, you know, I'm going to stay sober today. I'm going to be a member of my family once more, meaning my mother, my father, my sisters, I'm going to be the best family member I possibly can. I'm going to be a great father to my children. I'm going to stay sober today. I'm going to be present and active and consistent in their lives. That's really the work that I started doing um, early on. And when I started doing those work, that work and when I started really just commencing to live that different spiritual way of life is when I started to really see the, rela the relationships in my life start to change and change for the better, especially with my children now. Um, in no way did I force that relationship upon them. And I always had the uh, agreement with them that, hey guys, you know, especially early on, and we saw this agreement to this day, that when I'm coming to pick you up to hang up with you, if you just say, I'm tired and want to take a nap, I will respect that. And I respect that as you don't feel like hanging out today. Because just like in my own recovery, 
and in my own healing, it was done on my time. It was done on, it wasn't a timeline that I could create or force or dictate. Very much like theirs. I can't force, create, or dictate a timeline of their own healing. It's up to them um, to heal in their own way. All I can do is nurture, support, be patient, kind, and loving uh, with their timeline and with what they're going through. And that's really what I tried to do with my living amends and also my amends to this day. I, I, you know, everyone's healing is done at their own different timeline and I can't dictate what that timeline is. When they're at that point, they're at that point. When they're at the point of, of moving on, they're moving on or, or whatever it is that they're going through. I can, nothing I can do can move that forward other than doing my own part in that amends. That amends is mine. I need to commence upon living a different spiritual way. I need to be patient, tolerant, loving, kind. I need to be the best version of myself in order for that amends to work. And that's really what my amends turned out to be was each one um, cleaning my side of the street. And I, I know we hear that all the time, but that's literally the best advice that I can give to anyone is keep your side of the street cleaned. The amends is yours, own it. The amends was mine and, and I own it. I own my actions. I'm accountable for them, whether they're in my past or not. And as I'm going through the amends list and, and as I went through, you know, that uh, four, five, six, and seven, I really started to have a lot of self-forgiveness, realizing that that person that I loathed was no longer val valuable to keep in my life. Those defects of character, I didn't have a use for them with this new life that I'm living. That person that I was in my active addiction those things that I did, I, get, I forgave myself for. That was the amends to me because I know that it was me. I take accountability for him. I take responsibility. But I know that that choice was fueled. And at a certain point, I had to make the choice to forgive myself for the things that I did in order to move forward in a spiritual way. To live the life that I'm destined to live. To be the best version of myself. Um, so it was a really large tipping point in my recovery as well. And I know I said that a lot, but I mean, I think any time that you're, that you're doing step work and you have these breakthroughs as a large tipping point. And uh, if there's one thing that I do get really excited about and worked up about, obviously you can see that it's about recovery. But that was a, a turning point for me was that self-forgiveness and recognizing those character defects and coming up on my step 10 and, you know, Continuing to take that personal inventory when I'm wrong, promptly admitting it. Um, using my step 10 to manage my step 6 and 7, to manage my character defects. This entirely was a step that I had to practice day in and day out. When I got in those work scenarios, when I got fearful, when I got angry, when I would get in those scenarios where I'm not starting to feel like myself, I could stop and pause and be like, why am I feeling this? Why am I all disrupted? What is this feeling about? I could entertain those feelings and figure out whether or not they're valid to have. And if they're not, dismiss them. Even if they are, I can engage them, uh, figure out what they are, and set them aside and move forward in a more positive way. But I had that choice. And step 10 became something so much bigger to me in my life than just a list of things that I did throughout the day at the end when I went to bed. 
it was those moments in the day that I was like, okay, you know what? Things are going really good. What am I doing? Keep on doing that. It was that moment where I would stop and pray and ask for direction because I'm not feeling like I should. It was when I'm feeling this anger or this fear, whatever's driving me in the moment to act out in a way that I shouldn't be acting out in, I could stop and correlate that. And if it had gone too far, I could directly say, hey, look, I didn't mean to do that. And I'm sorry that my, uh, that my actions affected you in a negative way. I apologize. Can we please move forward with this? It was a way for me to manage my emotions, manage my anxiety, manage my mental health, but also keep going with the rest of the steps and start implementing them in my daily life. And that's really what I really started doing on a daily basis, you know, working steps one, two, three in the morning, putting my life in God's hands, asking to remove my defects of character, moving forward and implementing these steps in my everyday life. And also with, you know, my, my step 11, you know, trying to remain that conscious contact with God through prayer and through meditation, not just on a morning basis, not just on a nightly basis, but through all things that I do in all things that I'm, that I'm working for, trying to keep that direction in mind of doing the next right thing. Now, if you're newer in recovery, I, I, you know, one of the things that was suggested to me was that you're never, it's never too early to start doing a nightly inventory. Um, and I firmly stand behind that as well. And that's one of the things that I started doing early on as well is I started reviewing my conduct for the day, things that made me feel really good, um, that, you know, I'd done really well in my life and in my recovery and things that, you know, I owed someone apology for that. I was, I was fearful. I was resentful. I really started to, you know, really start picking at that really, really early, which in turn, when it came time for me to work my step 10, I feel like was already a practicing step, so to say in my life as I was already about this self-awareness and this mindfulness of things. Now, if you're having a hard time grasping what keeping that conscious contact with God is, as you're newer on this journey or just trying to figure out what your higher power is, well, I mean, it's most simply been put to me in this way. It is doing the next right thing a lot of the times. It's not this mystic feeling you're going to have to correlate you through the day in this magical, powerful way, although sometimes it is. That's not my, you know, 24-hour, you know, experience with it. Um, it is most basic for me, good orderly direction. It's doing the next right thing. It's living in a spiritual life. And the more that I live in a spiritual way, the better tuned in I am to get that guidance from God. So that's really what my, you know, steps eight, nine, 10, and 11 really were. They were and, and in my life is that I just began to implement these steps in not just my recovery, but in my everyday life, in the personal relationships I was having, in my work relationships, in my everyday interactions, in addition to going out every day and just trying to do the next right thing and be a blessing to everyone else, I now have this new spiritual toolkit that I can use to put these steps into practice in my life, which sort of brings me on to step 12, which is, of course, at its most fundamental level, you know, Carrying this message to alcoholics and, and addicts, um, but most definitely practicing these principles in all our affairs. Let's not forget that because that is what keeps me going 
And that is what keeps me sober. It's not just also what keeps me sober, it's what keeps my quality of life in check as well. Practicing these principles in all my affairs, I have a 12-step spiritual toolkit to guide me and lead me in my life to be the best version of myself. And am I perfect at it? Absolutely not. Are there days when I certainly miss the mark? Absolutely so. Uh, but again, you know, I, I don't want to sound like an AA plug, but it's progress, not perfection. Um, you know, give yourself a break as I've had to give myself plenty, plenty of breaks, but no matter what has happened in my life, uh, on those days when the world seems to be coming around me and I, and I haven't done very well and I'm feeling really resentful or hateful or hurtful, it's a good day. Um, because any day in recovery where I don't drink or do drugs is a good day to me. And no matter what, I can look back at my life before October 26th. And I know how bad it can be. And I know that each day from that point has gotten better. Each day gets better and better and better and better and better. And if you're new in recovery, if you're just starting this thing, hold on. It gets better. Tomorrow's going to be better. And the next day it's going to be better. And it's going to be better after that. And like I said, uh, I live a life beyond my wildest dreams. I've never been so content. I've never felt so complete. I've never been so happy. And I credit that all to working the steps. So whenever I go out and tell my story, and I do a lot of like H&I with, with different rehab centers, I never talk about the drug use. I never talk about the drinking. I never talk about what got me there too much because that doesn't make a difference anymore. It got me there. Where I am today is because I live in the solution. I am where I am today because I took accountability in my recovery, I took responsibility for my actions, and I took responsibility and action and accountability in my own recovery. Yes, those ninth step promises do come true. You just gotta hold on for them, as I had to hold on for them. And a lot of times I had to practice that radical level of acceptance of this is the problems I'm facing today, and this is what I can do about it. I had to live within a means of what I could control in that 24 hours a day because, like all of you, I can't future trip. I can't problem solve two, three weeks down the road when I don't have the means to. It doesn't lead to anywhere for me. It doesn't lead anywhere constructive. What I can deal with, though, is the set of 24 hours and the problem-solving skills I have right now in this moment to deal with them. So if you've remained listening um, up until this point, thank you so much. I hopefully uh, that story has helped someone out there. And if it's touched just one life, then I have fulfilled my purpose in my recovery. Thank you so much. And until next time.